Good morning. Today's readings are from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They don't have any wine. Jesus replied, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it is daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. The painting you see on the screen there. By the way, good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I get to be one of the pastors here. The painting you see on the screen here is one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night. Uh, I love this painting, uh, but one of the things you may not know about Vincent van Gogh is that he actually wanted to be a Methodist pastor. People think... People think it's a joke, like Vincent Van Gogh walks into a Methodist church. It's not a joke. He, he really did want to be a Methodist pastor. He spent, um, spent time as a voluntary, volunteer missionary in the Methodist church. He was an assistant to a Methodist pastor. He really wanted to be a Methodist pastor. But he, he did have two things working against him. One, he could not pass the seminary entrance exam. And two, you keep thinking this is a joke. It's not a joke. I'm not, there's no punchline. This is the truth. And the other thing that the other thing that Vincent Van Gogh had very seriously, many of you know this, is that he wrestled with mental illness. And so uh, there were some times, particularly in the 19th century, when mental illness was not well understood. It's still oftentimes not understood well now. In the 19th century, Van Gogh rubbed people some some of the wrong way. Eventually, he got fired by the church that he was working for, uh, to his great uh, sadness, but ultimately to the great blessing of the world, because Van Gogh went on to answer his true calling to be a famous painter. One of the things I want to point out about this painting, The Starry Night, one of the most famous paintings in the world, is that it shows us that Van Gogh sees light everywhere. 
There's light in the cosmos all over the sky. The Van Gogh sees light in the people around him, which is why in the town all the homes have lights on. Where's the one place without light? The church. The church. Van Gogh had a season of his life where he'd been hurt very deeply by the church. And for Van Gogh, he couldn't find any light inside the church. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because I've looked at this painting my entire life. Never saw that until recently. Last week, we started a new sermon series called The Greatest Story Ever Retold. See, the fourth gospel was written 30 years after the first gospel was written. Why did he write? John wrote because he was afraid we were missing part of the picture. And so he write, he wrote to try and help us see what we had never seen before. You see, in the Gospel of John, stories almost always operate on multiple levels. There's this surface layer where we understand a very basic understanding of the text. And then there's this deeper layer. And in this deeper layer, John's trying to help us answer some really deep and powerful questions in our lives. Questions like, who is this Jesus? And what does he matter for my life? And ultimately, if I encounter Jesus, when I come face to face with him, what does he require of me? Who is this Jesus? Why does it matter for my life? And what does he require of me? Now, Last week we started the series by looking at the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John called the Prologue. And in the first 18 verses, if we were to apply these questions, who is Jesus? What we come to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is the agent of God in creation. Everything that came into being came into being through Jesus. Without him, nothing came into being. Why does it matter for my life? Because in Jesus is life. And that life is the light of all people. If we want to understand our lives, if we want to come out of darkness into light, it happens through Christ. And then perhaps the most important question of all, what does Jesus require of me? In John 1, we heard that the word became flesh and he brought grace upon grace to the world. And if we have been touched by grace, what Jesus requires of us is that we share grace with the world around us. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the miraculous stories of Jesus in the first half of John's gospel. We're going to look at some of these miracle stories. We're going to try and look at them not only on their surface and most base level, we're going to also try and understand them on this deeper level to perhaps see some things that we have never seen before. So let's get started. In John chapter 2, Jesus finds himself at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and they run out of wine. And his mom says... Hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says, so? But then eventually, like any good young man, he honors his father or mother. She tells the waiters to do what Jesus tells them to do. And Jesus goes and he he, he says, I want you to fill up these six stone pitchers right here with water. Now, the thing is, John tells us they weren't just any stone pitchers. They were stone pitchers that were used for ritual cleansing. What is John saying? What happens when Jesus comes right out of the gate? John's taking shots. What John tells us that happens through the event of Jesus Christ in this passage. Jesus is saying, in normal religious ritual, things are just kind of boring. Until I touch them. And then that average, everyday religious ritual becomes engaging and life-giving and even intoxicating. 
Jesus took something as ordinary, as normal as water, and He transforms it into something extraordinary. And here's the thing. Jesus does it all the time, and He still does it. If Jesus could take something as ordinary as water and make it into something extraordinary, imagine what He could do with your life and mine. Jesus is in the business of taking things that are ordinary and turning them into something that's extraordinary. So on the most basic level, most simplistic understanding of John chapter 2, God is in the power of taking those things that are ordinary and transforming them into things that are extraordinary. Ordinary religious ritual becomes rich and flavorful in Jesus Christ. It's a basic understanding. But I wonder if you might indulge me to take a, a little bit deeper look at what's happening with the turning of water into wine. You see, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Jesus institutes the Last Supper with a very, very formulaic process. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We see it in all three of the first Gospels. Now in the Gospel of John, John dedicates five chapters to the night Jesus gives himself up for the world. Five chapters, but you know what never happens in John? Jesus never institutes the Last Supper. Why? Because according to John's economy, Jesus has already done it. In John chapter 2, Jesus made wine. In John chapter 6, Jesus goes on to make something else. Check this out. It was nearly time for the Passover. By the way, when was it that Jesus instituted the Last Supper? What festival? The Passover. It was nearly time for the Passover, the Jewish festival. Jesus looked up. He saw large crowds coming towards him. He said, Philip, where will we buy food to feed these people? Jesus said this to test him. For He already knew what he was going to do. Now just hang on a minute. In my mind, it went down like this. Oh, look at all these people. What are we going to do? Oh, wait. I'm Jesus. Right? That's how I think it happened. Because Jesus said it. He tested Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. And what was he going to do? He was going to feed these people. Thousands of people are coming at him. They're hungry. Jesus Christ is going to feed them. And the way he does is he takes one little boy's paltry lunch and he transforms it into a feast. Now, to further this conversation, I need to take a bit of a detour. Raise your hand if you've ever enjoyed Indian food before. Anybody? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. My wife and I discovered Indian food when we were down in Georgia, along with a couple of our friends, Teresa and Derwin. And here's the thing about Indian food. What you tend to do is you order a dish or two for the table, and then you have rice and bread that you eat with it. And the problem we had was that we could never decide on what we wanted the main dish to be. Because our friends liked a lamb dish called lamb rojangosh. My wife likes this thing called vegetable korma, which has vegetables in it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you ever hear that she's left me, it will be for a vegetable. She loves them. My favorite is something called chicken tikka masala. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Love it. We couldn't always agree on what we wanted in the middle of the table, but you know what we could always agree on was the bread. Right? Because there's this type of bread in India called naan. There's a particular type of naan called pishwari naan. And pishwari naan, they cut open the flatbread and they put cherries and coconut and glory inside. <laughs> then you eat it with your food. We couldn't, we couldn't quite agree on everything, but the thing that brought us together every time, the thing that brought us together was the bread. I just want to point out the same thing is true in the church of Jesus Christ. We have some people in this room who are profoundly evangelical. Our call is, is to help save people's souls. 
We have some other people in this room who interpret their calling from Jesus Christ as trying to meet the physical needs of people who are suffering. We've got people in the middle on all sides, and rightfully so, because our diversity, it brings glory to God. And as diverse as we are, the one thing that brings us together, the one thing we can agree on, we're brought together at the bread and the wine. It brings us together still. And by the way, when Jesus made bread, he didn't make a little bit of bread. The Bible says that when he was finished instituting that miraculous event, they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. They ended with more food than they started with. Sounds like a Methodist potluck to me. It wasn't, it wasn't just a little bit of food. And what John has to help us understand, what we need to see, is that when we're talking about the Last Supper, we're talking, it's, it's grace. The bread and the wine, it's about grace. And John wants us to know that when it comes to Christ, we're not on a subsistence level of grace, church. It's a feast of grace. Go back to John chapter 2. The transformation of water into wine. Six stone jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. That's between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine, church. In Jesus Christ, we don't get just a little bit of grace. We're drowning in it. So, if we're willing to expand our understanding a bit as we read through the Gospel of John, we see that the transformation of water into wine isn't just about Jesus being powerful, though He is. It's also about God's capacity to meet our needs with God's grace. And not just on a subsistence level. There's enough grace to change my life and your life and this entire world. It's not a little bit of grace. It's grace upon grace. church. And maybe, maybe, we've just never seen it that way before. Let's look at another story. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking along with his disciples and they see a man who has been born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, um, Jesus, who, uh, who was it that sinned that this man would be born blind? Did, did he sin? Did his parents sin? Who sinned? So the, the, the disciples are articulating a worldview that says that when people suffer, they're suffering because God is punishing them for sin. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. And this is actually what Jesus says in John chapter 9. This is what Jesus says. There we go. Neither he nor his parents sinned. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. So Jesus wants, as quickly as he can, Jesus wants us to know, it's not that God gave this man some kind of a punishment. That's not the way that God is rolling here. God doesn't make you born blind because your parents made a mistake. That's not the way God acts in the world. I went back and I did my own transliteration of this passage. And it looks like this. By the way, I don't, I don't want you to think differently just because I did my own <coughs> transliteration. Uh, the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither he nor his parents sinned. And then Jesus goes on to say, nevertheless, that that which is hidden may be revealed. 
That's the transliteration. This man isn't suffering because he sinned or because his parents sinned. God is not the bringer of suffering to the world. God's the bringer of grace. Nevertheless, he is suffering. So I'm going to cause that which is hidden to be revealed. Now the question for us is, what is it that's hidden? And the most basic level, the most basic answer is, well, the man's sight has been hidden from him. And so Jesus is going to give him his sight. But if we pay attention, we might see there's something far more remarkable going on. Look in verse 6 with me. After Jesus said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Now let's just call a time out here for a minute. Uh, every time I read this passage, and John's my favorite book, and I read it a lot, and every time I read this passage, I get to this verse, and I kind of want to go, <laughs> right? Just a little bit. It's kind of gross. And there's a part of me that says, Jesus, why? Why? Why would you do this to this poor man, right? Couldn't you just, you know, bippity-boppity-boo it? I don't know. It's gross. So, so the, best, the best thing I can come up with is this. When John reinterprets the events of the world, John tells us that everything that came into being came into being through Christ. If we go all back to Genesis chapter 2, when God creates, God creates from the dust of the earth. So what we see John articulating here is that God is still in the process of creating from the dust of the earth. God creates what had not been. God creates sight for the man who's blind. And that's a beautiful way to see it. But it's still just a little bit gross, right? All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. And when he returned, he could see. Now, here's my question. Have you ever asked yourself, I wonder what would have happened if the man, after Jesus left him, if the man just stepped over to the side of the road and was like, That is so nasty. I can't believe he did that to me. That's horrible. What if he had never gone to the pool of Siloam? I don't know what would have happened either to you. But here's my guess. If this man had not been obedient to God, I, I feel like it's, it's quite likely he would not have experienced the healing that God intended for him. And I would say that the same thing is true in my life and probably in yours. I think God wants to be the God of healing in our lives. Particularly, I think God wants to heal our relationships because those are of a premium quality to God. God is most concerned with our relationship with God, with one another, with ourselves. Those are the greatest commandments. But... I think also that when God offers healing to us, God also requires some degree of obedience. If I'm in my marriage and my marriage has problems, and all marriages at a certain point have some kind of problem, and I pray, God, please help me with my wife and my husband, I think that God wants to help us. I also think that God expects us to be obedient as those who have received grace to offer grace. So if I've got a problem with someone in my family or a colleague at work or school, I believe that God wants to transform us. But I also believe it's true, friends, that in the process of that transformation and healing, I think God invites us to be part of the redemptive work. God invites us to be obedient. And the man is obedient. He goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam and he comes back and the man who's been blind from birth, now he can see. And word starts to get out. And in verse 13, we find that that word has gotten out to the Pharisees. Then they led the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on a Sabbath day. So the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. And the man told them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and now I see. And some Pharisees said, 
This man isn't from God because he breaks the Sabbath law. So these guys have walked around with the man who was blind their whole lives. They'd seen him begging. And one day he shows up to church and he can see. And the pastors say, not, this is amazing. The pastors say, what day did this happen on again? A Sabbath day. Clearly this is from the devil. What? What? I can't, I can barely fit that inside of myself. There's a part of me that wants to laugh at them. There's a part of me that holds a grudge with them. And the part that holds the grudge with them holds the grudge because what Rob knows about Rob is there's just a little bit of a Pharisee inside of Rob. I think that there are times that God wants to do things that are miraculous, transformational, sometimes in our worship service, but you know what I know? I got to have you guys out of here in an hour and three minutes so we can set up for our next service. I know that. My, I've got a staff that works really hard to help keep me on my schedule. In fact, I, I keep them up at night. <laughs> Last week, I, I had someone who came to me, and, and um, it was in passing. It was just one of those moments in passing. And she was barely able to hold in the tears. So there was something going on. And I had to fight with her to let her, you know, to... To, to stay with me. He kept saying, you're so busy, you're so busy, you're so busy. I was like, do you think there's anything, anything on my schedule that's more important than what's happening right now? But that's the exception. See, I'm trying to learn it. The truth is, ministry happens in the interruptions. God changes our lives, but rarely does God make an appointment on my calendar to do it, church. The Pharisees were so set in what they had always done that when God showed up and changed the world, they couldn't see. And I want to make sure, I want to make sure that I'm at least aware of the fact that there's a bit of a Pharisee inside of me so that when God shows up, I can see it. When God's transforming lives, I can be part of the transformational effort rather than holding myself back. And I think it's important for us all to recognize there's just a little bit of a Pharisee inside of us. So the man's sight is restored. Goes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not pleased with what they hear. So they send the man away. They invite his parents to come. They make them bear testimony. The parents, they don't know right from wrong, up from down. They're just scared to death because the Pharisees are going to exact retribution on anybody who affirms Jesus. And so eventually they say, we don't know anything. Just talk to our son. And in verses 24 and 25, they call the man back. And this is what happens. And for a second time, for the man who, they, they called a second time for the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And the man answered by saying, I don't know whether he's a sinner. Here's what I know. I once was blind, but now I see. I don't know anything about Jesus except this. I once was blind, but now I see. I love the Gospel of John. I love it for a number of reasons. Let me show you something. The disciples started this whole process by articulating a worldview that was inconsistent with the worldview of God. They didn't see. The Pharisees, they couldn't get past the fact that God, 
healed somebody on a day that was incommensurate with their schedule. They couldn't see. The man's parents never went and gave thanks to Jesus. They just sat back in fear. They couldn't see. The disciples couldn't see. The Pharisees couldn't see. The man's parents couldn't see. Don't you love it? Aside from Jesus, who's the only guy in the story who actually can see? The blind guy. Don't you love it? I feel like you don't love it the way you should, but it's, you should love it. The only guy who can see in the story is the blind guy. I love it. I love it. And not only that, I love this, this verse 24 where, where he says, I don't know everything about Jesus. Only thing I can tell you for sure is this. I was blind, and now I see. The story of John Newton has become really famous. He was a, a slave trader in the late 18th century, which means he went to Africa and he, he hunted human beings like animals. He trapped them. He took them north, either to Great Britain or west, over to the Americas. And he sold them like cattle. And from his, his own journal entries, we find that John Newton was, even amongst the base slave traders, John Newton was the basest of them all. He was, he was involved in alcohol and womanizing. He's just, he was a wretched human being. One day, a storm came along, washed some of the members of his ship overboard to their death. And John Newton encountered Christ in the midst of this tragedy. He went back to his native England. He began to work with a man named William Wilberforce, a member of parliament, and together by the end of John Newton's life, they'd worked to establish uh, that slavery was outlawed in the British kingdom, the British Empire. In 1779, John Newton, who'd become a pastor, wrote a poem. He asked his congregation to say it with him at the end of one of the worship services poem went like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The thing I love about John Newton's story is this. John Newton is not remembered for his former shame. John Newton is remembered because of God's amazing grace. I love it. And he takes that last line of his first verse. I once was blind, but now I see. He takes it directly from John chapter 9. Where the man says, I can't tell you everything about Jesus. I don't know everything about Jesus. I just know this. I once was blind, but now I see. The only gospel that that man could tell with any degree of integrity was the gospel of his own life. So here's my question to you. What's your gospel story? We all have them. And there are people in this room who could tell us their story and it would knock our socks off. But everybody has a story. Everybody has a gospel story. I have one. I've told it to you before. I wanted to be a pastor my whole life. Then I encountered some doubt along the way. Caused me to doubt faith. Caused me to doubt God. And I look back on that season of doubt, that wilderness experience in my life, And the truth is I'm grateful for it because it's made me a better pastor. Now when people come to me with serious questions and doubts, 
I can encourage them to ask hard questions because what I know is that doubt helps to give way to faith. When people come to me from the wilderness, instead of sitting in judgment and condemnation over them, I have this I have this perspective that allows me to offer grace to them. Why? Because when I was in the wilderness, God gave me grace. We all have our stories. What's your gospel story? Is yours a story about a time when you didn't have enough and God provided? Is it about a time where you experienced addiction and maybe it was some kind of a substance, like drugs or alcohol, or maybe maybe our addiction was simply to success? God pull you out of fear, sorrow, loss, anger. We all, we all have a gospel story that we're invited to tell. God wants to tell a story in your life and in mine that runs deeper than the surface. What's your gospel? I want to challenge you this week. As your pastor, I am challenging you this week to tell somebody your gospel story. In the gospel of John, things almost always operate on two levels. We see people who have their sight restored. We see a little bit of bread turning into a whole lot of bread and a little bit of water turning into a whole lot of wine. But we also see deeper questions being answered. Who is Jesus? Why does he matter for my life? And what's he require of me? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the God of great power. But he didn't stay removed from our situation. He became intimately involved with our lives. What difference does it make in my life? In Christ, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. In Christ, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. That's the difference it makes for my life. Even though people around me can't see, God gives me sight. And the most important question, perhaps, what does God require of me? I think God requires that those of us who have experienced grace tell that story to the world around us. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the ordinary becomes the extraordinary. Water becomes wine. A paltry little lunch becomes a feast. Dirt brings sight. And it didn't just happen back in the first century. God is still taking things that are ordinary and transforming them into things that are extraordinary today. God's doing it in your life. And maybe you've never seen it that way before. I challenge you to go tell the gospel story of your life to somebody this week. I challenge you to do that. Come back next week. We'll look at our next installment of The Greatest Story Ever Retold.